Louis XIV reigned for 72 years between 1638 and 1718. That's the longest reign of any other European monarch. During his reign, he would reform France's financial system and promote programs that allowed the arts to flourish in French culture. Louis, who's also referred to as the Sun King, would grow to become the symbol of absolute monarchy. You probably know him as the king responsible for constructing the extravagant and iconic Palace Versailles, which is still standing today. So, how did a king that oversaw this shining era of French history plunge the country into warfare and religious distress in the years leading up to his death? Find out today on Simply Biographical. Louis XIV was born on September 5, 1638, to King Louis XIII of France and his wife. He was the couple's first child, so his birth allowed them to gain an heir and continue the bloodline of the king. The couple therefore regarded his birth as a miracle and a gift from God, christening their firstborn Louis Dieudonnet, the latter portion of his name literally meaning gift from God. King Louis and Anne would go on to have another son, Philippe, two years later. Now, I know a lot of us grow up thinking that one of our siblings is the favorite child, but at least we didn't grow up with an older brother who was literally named Gift from God. Okay, jumping back in. Louis XIII died in May of 1643, leaving the French throne to his eldest son and heir, Louis XIV, who was just four years old at this time. We aren't going to look too deeply at the state of France during this time period, but it is important to note that the country Louis had inherited was in a very rocky and unstable position. Given that the new king was just four years old, probably not the best age to be given control of an entire nation, his mother, Anne, served as regent, ruling in her son's stead, and she did this with the help and advice of Chief Minister Cardinal Mazarin. Anne and Cardinal Mazarin were not exactly well-loved by the people. Their actions launched the country into civil war, multiplying the problems of the crown. At this time, France was already in the middle of a war with Spain, and then Anne and Cardinal Mazarin began enacting policies that brought more and more power to the crown, which angered the Parliament of Paris. The rising tension between the two opened the floodgates for an attempt to overthrow the French crown. The resulting civil war was called the Fronde, and although this rebellion would be suppressed in 1653, it had forced the royal family to sneak out of Paris. The memory of this rebellion would impact Louis for the rest of his life. At the beginning of this episode, we talked about how Louis would go on to be regarded as the symbol of absolute monarchy, and that really stemmed from this experience. Louis was left humiliated by the experience of having to sneak out of the city of Paris, and he was also left very fearful of rebellion. As we continue to examine Louis's life, we are going to see that he was insistent on maintaining his absolute authority and insistent that the nobility of his court be absolutely loyal to him, to the point of near worship. The Fronde also left a bad taste in Louis's mouth for the city of Paris. I don't want to say that he hated the city, but he certainly felt a certain disdain for it, and this becomes evident when he begins construction of Versailles and begins to govern from that location. Shortly after the Fronde had drawn to a close, France reached a resolution with Spain, negotiating a peace treaty that ended the war and secured France's position as a leading power in Europe. However, in order to ensure the ratification of this treaty, a 22-year-old Louis married the King of Spain's daughter, Marie Therese, in 1660. It's pretty widely agreed that Louis did not feel a great deal of affection or love for his wife. In fact, he would go on to become known for his many, many affairs. 
but he was determined to do his duty by Marie Therese in continuing to provide her attention and continuing to attempt to produce an heir through her. He had many illegitimate children through his mistresses, but only one of his six children with Marie Therese would go on to survive into adulthood, and that would be the son that bore his name, Louis. Okay, jumping back into our timeline. In 1661, Cardinal Mazarin died, and Louis declared that he would rule without a chief minister, which was very radical for the time, and it really shocked his court. Louis believed that he was directly appointed by God, as we discussed before, and therefore he really thought that he did not need the counsel of a chief minister. He adopted the sun as his emblem and became known as the Sun King, kind of modeling himself after the Greek god Apollo. I think the sun is such a fitting emblem for Louis because it really embodied everything he wanted to be, life-giving and dominating. He was famously quoted as saying, L'état, c'est moi. I am the state. Beginning in 1661, Louis, now 27 years old, began construction of his magnificent palace, Versailles. Here we see Louis' sentimental side beginning to come out. His plan for Versailles was to begin construction at the site of his father's old hunting lodge where he'd played as a child. For Louis, it was not enough that this palace be on the site of the old chateau that had been his father's lodge. He wanted the palace to expand upon the old building, completely preserving the original lodge, a request that posed many architectural difficulties by itself, on top of the difficulties posed by the location Louis had chosen. The terrain was certainly not ideal for the construction of a massive structure like Versailles. It was swampy and hilly, and to support the king's vision, the landscape would need to be completely changed. In addition to the many requests, or let's be honest, demands, Louis had for the building, he also wanted to surround Versailles with fantastic lakes, groves, fountains, gardens, all of that, and he wanted it fast. Louis's architects rose to the challenge, creating an envelope-type design that surrounded the old chateau on three sides by the opulent palace. Then, to meet the demands for the landscape surrounding the palace, they actually uprooted mature trees from other parts of France to plant in the gardens of Versailles and achieve the look that the king was looking for in the time frame that he wanted it. If the king wants fully grown trees, you cannot just wait for the trees to grow. The construction of Versailles posed more than just technical issues. As you can imagine, 17th century France was lacking in safety regulations on its building sites. There was no OSHA, no health and safety managers, just men supervising the site who were under tight deadlines from an impatient king who seemingly held very little regard for the lives of the lower class working to construct the palace. The mortality rate was very high on the building site. In order to keep morale up, those in charge sought to hide the evidence of the many deaths by removing the corpses at night. Now, a big reason for doing this was to avoid a worker uprising. Fortunately for the king, but probably unfortunately for the workers, construction was completed without much of a struggle from those who were literally dying to build it. In 1672, Versailles was ready for the king to move in and begin governing from the location. The palace was home to incredible gardens and beautiful interior features, such as the famous Hall of Mirrors. Louis also loved to hold lavish festivities at his home. He was really seeking to overcome Italy as the chief tastemaker of Europe. He was therefore a great patron of the arts in France. 
With control of the French government, Louis began to reform the financial system and the nature of French nobility, truly imposing his dominance and will over his country and his court. Louis's finance minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, helped him to establish new policies that cut France's deficit and organized the tax system. However, he declared his nobles exempt from paying taxes in an effort to make them more dependent on him. Remember also that it was the nobles who had grown angry with the crown's policies at the time of the Fronde, leading the country into civil war. While trying to make his nobles more dependent on him, Louis also sought to keep his nobles happy and kind of caught up in his almost cult of personality, and tax reform was not the only way he did this. He insisted that his nobles reside with him at Versailles, and this was really a smart move for Louis because it ensured their dependence on him and allowed him to keep an eye on them. Eventually, he turned his daily routine from waking up and getting dressed to eating and going to bed into an event that nobles were expected to watch. These nobles would actually fight for the privilege of tasks like helping him to dress and undress at the beginning and end of the day or handing him a napkin at dinner. In fact, at dinner, the nobles would stand and watch him eat, just hoping he would speak to them. Louis had been known for his many affairs and extravagant taste, but as he grew older, Louis began to change. He began to become increasingly religious toward the end of his life. His wife, Marie Therese, died in 1683, and after this, he abandoned his affairs with wealthy noblewomen of the court and turned, instead, to Madame de Maintenon, a pious widow who had been the governess of his illegitimate children. She had great influence over Louis, particularly her strict religious views. This appealed to the king, however, because, now growing older, Louis had to face the reality that one day the sun would set on his life and he would, in fact, die. Raised Catholic, it was therefore important to die in a state of grace to avoid damnation and hellfire for all eternity. Although Louis never publicly declared his marriage to Madame de Maintenon, the two married in a secret ceremony nonetheless. We now see a very sharp change in the character of Louis XIV, and it was this withdrawn religious Louis, not the lustful extravagant Louis of his youth, that began to impose his religious beliefs onto the whole of France. In 1685, Louis revoked the Edict of Nantes that had been set in place by his grandfather to protect the religious freedoms of French Protestants, known as Huguenots. Instead, he issued a new edict, the Edict of Fontainebleau, that did quite the opposite. It essentially banned Protestantism from the country. Protestant churches were burned, their schools were closed, their marriages invalidated, and their right to assembly revoked. But it didn't stop there. All children would be required to be baptized as Catholic and receive a Catholic education. For a man who believed that he was God's gift to France, this was not an entirely shocking move. But, as always happens when rulers begin a strategy of religious oppression, it backfired. It's estimated that up to 800,000 French Protestants fled the country in the decades following the Edict of Fontainebleau, greatly weakening France's labor force, thereby severely damaging the economic system Louis had worked so hard to reform. In the years leading up to his death, Louis would engage in other wars across Europe, farther weakening France. 
Although the Sun King outlived his closest descendants, particularly his son and grandson next in line for the throne, he succumbed to the fate that awaits all men. For Louis, death came for him in the form of a gangrenous infection that began in his leg and ultimately spread up his body, killing him. He died on September 1st, 1715, just four days before his 77th birthday, after a 72-year-long reign. At the end of Louis's life, we see the French rule come full circle. He was succeeded by his five-year-old great-grandson, a child who would inherit a country weakened by the choices of his predecessor. And that's the life of Louis XIV. I know that ends on a bit of a depressing note, so I wanted to follow up our story with a fun fact. According to the BBC documentary, Versailles, The Dream of a King, conditions in Versailles were not as sparkling as we might imagine. In fact, servants thought nothing of relieving themselves in the palace corridors. Thank goodness our hygienic practices have improved since then. Thanks so much for listening. Follow us on Instagram at Simply Biographical Podcast, all one word. I relied pretty heavily on History.com, BBC, and the BBC documentary Versailles, The Dream of a King to complete this episode, but be sure to look for a full list of sources in the episode description. I'm your host, Bree, and I'll see you back here next week.